So as Ken said earlier, if you are new, uh, my name is Tony. That was Ken. Now you guys separated, and uh, we don't share an office. We share a podium, and that's about it. But uh, we welcome you here on this Palm Sunday. And, uh, and as we do every week, we are rooted in the Scriptures. And today, we're going to go to a passage found in John chapter 12. There are several different uh, accounts that kind of give us different angles, if you will, of Palm Sunday in the Scriptures. But uh, we're going to look from here today. You know, in understanding this, if you will, the, uh, the emotions on both sides of this story, uh, when it comes to there's, there's the aspect of what Jesus is feeling when he comes into the city, and then there's the part of what's going on in the minds of those who are actually on the sides of the road, waving palm branches and celebrating, saying, Hosanna. And, and so, I, I just real quick, I kind of wanted to uh, feel a little bit of the emotion of Jesus. Uh, when I was growing up in a very small town in Kansas, the opportunity to uh, go and travel places there, it took a long time to get to another state. Outside of Nebraska, 19 miles away to there, but to get to anywhere else, I mean, you're talking hours of driving to get there. Some of you tell me, yes, I've been to Kansas before, and boy, is that state long. It's because you're trying to get to Colorado. It's not because Kansas is your destination point. But if you grow up there and you have a lot of memories and you have grandparents or so on in a very small rural town, then when you come up on that town and you're seeing it for the first time in months, you get excited. And, and so for myself, I get back usually about every year, but it's been two years since I've been back because I went to South Africa last summer. But I'm looking forward to going to my hometown. And if I come to my hometown at night and I'm coming from the south going north, there's a hill that is about 20 miles south of my hometown that when you get up on that hill, you can see the lights of my city. Now here, you can get on hills and you can see Lidditz from different angles. You could probably see Mannheim from different angles, but it's pretty limited. You get just that spot, kind of in that area, but you don't get this vast look. Well, when you get in these high plains and you get a, a, a hill that might rise above others, you can see for miles. And at night, when you can see my hometown, Phillipsburg, Kansas, from 20 miles away, you can also see the town that's 20 miles to the, 29 miles to the east of it. You can see the town that's 33 miles to the west of it. And you can see the town that's 21 miles north of it from that hill. You see the lights, and you can start naming these groupings of lights that you see in front of you. And in the daytime, when you come up on that hill, you can see the water tower of my hometown from 20 miles away. And there's just something when you're coming home that you just get excited. You're, you're excited uh, to see family. You're excited to experience being around friends again. And it brings a lot of memories every time. Every time I go back. For Jesus, imagine. It says at the point when he is coming into the city, he rises up over a hill and he sees Jerusalem. He has memories that go back hundreds of years. And it says that Jesus weeps as he sees Jerusalem upon the horizon. He weeps because he says, how many messengers have I sent to you? 
Over the years, over the centuries, how many messengers have I sent to you? And you've hurt them, you've flogged them, you've disobeyed them, you've ignored them, and some of them you even killed. But yet, they kept sending more messengers. This was a city that was upon the heart of God. From the moment that Abraham was told by God, leave this place where you've grown up and go to a country that you've never been to before, and I'm going to make that your home. I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. And from that point on, Jerusalem became the apple of God's eye when it comes to an earthly city. And so throughout Scripture, you see how Jerusalem rises and falls. You see how prophets were sent by God to go and speak to Jerusalem so that their heart would be drawn back to the heart of God. God had a tender spot to that city because that city reflected his promises. It reflected this people that he had chosen. And he had paid a great price to keep his name before them. Now Jesus is coming. He's rising over that hill. He sees it, and he is drawn from all the memories, not of growing up and being born there, but rising up and seeing that city and realizing how much his father had paid great price so that that city could hear from his heart. It makes sense that he would weep in that moment. So as he's coming into the city, he's coming in, knowing he's coming to die. Another prophet dying and spilling his blood upon the streets of Jerusalem. Another prophet that's coming with a word that, 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 that the people needed to hear, but except this sacrifice was going to be so different from any other. So imagine the conflict of soul as he's coming in on that donkey, on that Palm Sunday, being celebrated by the crowds, but knowing he is in the line of the prophets who will suffer great, greatly at the hands of those in Jerusalem. Kind of changes the perspective when you realize his longing wasn't like our longing for our hometowns. It covered centuries. And the memories were many. So as we read this today, that's the perspective and heart of God. The relentless pursuit of drawing a people to himself. But we're going to learn a little bit today about the crowd. About why they would sing Hosanna or shout Hosanna on that day. So let's begin by reading in John chapter 12. We're going to be there in verse 12 and following. And this will be painting the picture of what was happening that day. Again, Jesus has already wept over Jerusalem. He's coming into the city. And that next day, the great crowd, a great crowd had come for the festival and heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Let me stop there. 
So the crowds are declaring, Hosanna, which means he saves. Hosanna, he saves. What were they thinking when they're shouting this and raving, waving these uh, palm branches and laying them down on the road before him, including their coats? It, you find in another text, they're celebrating this entrance. What do you think is upon their mind? I can be pretty confident what wasn't on their mind. Because let's look at this for a moment. First of all, in their culture, what were they hoping to be saved from? Rome. They're under the oppression of a great Gentile enemy. And, and, and so they're feeling the, the desire to be nationalized once again, that the nation of Israel would become whole again. So they're hoping to be saved from the tyranny of that oppressor. Some maybe, some maybe, even expected a spiritual revival. That perhaps the priesthood would grow in strength once again. That because Jesus was not only a powerful and persuasive speaker, he was a leader. And that maybe that not only would there be this, this transition from the oppression of Rome, but maybe there would also be a drawing of the hearts of the people back to Yahweh. I don't get the sense, however, that that is the most common emotion that you see here. But I want to give it its credence that that was possible. Some maybe felt there was a spiritual revival that could happen with Jesus coming. Certainly, the crowd was not foreseeing this. And this is where I'm absolutely confident. The crowd had no clue that they were celebrating someone who was coming to his death. They were not celebrating, hey, here comes Jesus who's going to die on Friday. They had no clue. What kind of crowd would amass to celebrate the entrance of somebody that they knew were going to die that week? No, they were expecting that he was going to be a victorious leader. Something was going to happen in Jerusalem that was going to cause a great awakening, a great movement, and begin the losses for Rome. They were not celebrating somebody who was coming to die. That was not their mindset. It's not where they were at. But they did get something right. He indeed was coming to save them just not in the manner that they expected. So why is it that they're expecting a conquering earthly king and not a king who is going to provide salvation unto eternity? Why was it that they were not expecting a death, even though Jesus had proclaimed that that would happen? Was it that these people... Were with, that information was withheld from these people that they would be so blind as to what was going to happen in those days. And the reality is this. Everything that they needed to be able to understand that that king was coming to die was right there before them. 
all the information they needed to know that he was coming to die, and yes, even resurrect, was right there at their fingertips. It was told, it was spoken, it was not covertly spoken by Jesus. So what happened? If all that information is there, how is it that they could be so lost to the idea that this king coming in was coming to die four days later? How is it that they could be that misunderstood? The only conclusion you can come to is because Jesus spoke these things publicly was that they simply didn't listen. They simply didn't listen. I mean, we get this. This happens in humanity, especially as parents, when you te- tell your kids certain things and they keep doing it, you just say, you're not listening to me. The same thing happens here. Jesus has been speaking for three plus years. What's going to happen? And so many did not listen, including the 12. Did not understand. Did not receive the fact that certain things or being spoken of Jesus. It's even here in the text. They didn't understand until later the glorification of Jesus. In Luke 18, verses 31 to 33, and, and chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus actually speaks very overtly as to what's going to happen on Friday of that holy week. He says, it says, and again, prior to this, uh, this whole moment, it says, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets, so it's already been said, by the prophets of old, about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will insult him. They will spit on him. They will flog him, and they will kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So it sounds to me that Jesus didn't withhold any information. That information was out there. He had said other things to public in public settings. This was said to the 12, but the 12 knew this and they did not understand what was going to happen that week. So indeed, Hosanna was the proper statement from the crowd. Hosanna, he's coming to save. They're celebrating, they're happy, they're, they're, they're thinking this is a victorious king. If they had been told, which they had, and they had understood, which they did not, they probably would have had a different energy on Sunday. Why would you celebrate somebody who's dying on Friday? What do you think the crowd would look like if they knew Friday on the previous Sunday? Do you think they'd be waving palm branches and celebrating? Probably not. You think they'd be lying their coats on the road, which shows that they're in submission to him? No, not likely. Why would you celebrate a dead man? Why would you celebrate a man who showed that he had the power of God, but would succumb to the Gentile nation? That's who he's supposed to save us from. They simply didn't listen. This information was right there, but they simply did not listen. Well, not only did they get it right about the statement of saying, Hosanna, he saves. But they also got right that he's the king. It says, blessed is the king of Israel. 
who comes in the name of the Lord. So they identify him as king, which is appropriate. He is a powerful leader that is capable of doing what seemed impossible before in their minds. I mean, he had been doing some amazing things over the years before this. The stories were constant. He was a legend, a living legend in their day. So they were dreaming pretty big. Prior to Jesus coming on the scene, they would never have dreamed that somebody could give them the hope that they could beat Rome. But when a man that could do the things Jesus does gave them permission to dream. So they see him as being sent from God. And again, accurately. So they accurately say he saves. They accurately say he's the king. They accurately say he's from the Lord God. But there's something still amiss. There's still something not right. While not wrong in their identification, and while not wrong in whom he was sent by, there was something they didn't understand, and it's this. They didn't understand that he was actually one with God, not just sent by God. They also didn't understand that, yes, he's king, but he is going to be king of all kings for eternity. Again, that information was found in the scriptures that they had studied since they were children. That information had been there even at the lips of Jesus in their lifetime. But yet, somehow, they didn't hear it because they weren't listening. John chapter 5, and again, a public statement by Jesus says this, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor have you seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one who he sent. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think that they give you eternal life. Yet these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So they have these scriptures in their hands that they've been studying since they were children. And then they have the evidences of Jesus. They have the words of Jesus. But yet they could not see. They could not accept the scriptures that they were, they were hanging on to. They, they unfortunately looked to the scriptures that if I just know the scriptures, I'm saved. Not realizing that the scriptures were given us to point us to where you might find salvation. Again, spoken way before Palm Sunday. Yet they didn't listen. He's coming to give them life. He's coming to do things that have been said from long ago by many prophets, but they still did not listen. Another thing that is lost in this, they've got him right. They're saying he is coming to save. So they got that right. They just don't understand save from what? They've got it right that he is the king, but they don't understand the level of kingship that he actually is. They've got it right that he's come from God, but didn't understand he was one with God. But there's an aspect that's still also lost. And that Jesus' kingship and his dominion was not singular to Israel alone. 
His dominion and his kingship was going to be to all peoples. You see in this text this statement that says, do not be afraid, verse 15, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And then after it says the disciples didn't understand that this was talking about Jesus until later. That was written by the prophet Zechariah centuries before this moment. Centuries before this moment. And yet in this moment, Jesus fulfills it. He's coming in on the seat of a donkey. But somehow it's missed by them. I mean, it is significant. When you look at how Jesus fulfills all the prophecies, how is it that they have this scripture in their hands and they're not seeing it? A few years ago, here on this stage, we helped you understand the analogy of what it means to have the Messiah, Jesus Christ, fulfilling prophecy and how unlikely that a single individual could do it. That just fulfilling seven prophecies, just fulfilling seven of them, is the likelihood of one to ten to the hundred, or the, I'm sorry, to the one millionth to the seventeenth power. To give you the magnitude of that number is to do this. Fill the entire state of Texas three feet with coins, same coin, quarters. Take that quarter, write an, one quarter, write an X on it. Blindfold somebody in Oklahoma. Push them into the state of Texas, which is what you would have to do. You push them into the state of Texas and say, now walk throughout the Texas as long as you want. Pick up one coin, but you only get to choose one. The likelihood of him picking up the one coin that has an X on it is the same likelihood of one man fulfilling seven prophecies. Jesus fulfilled eight in day one of his birth. There were over 400 written about the Messiah in the Old Testament. So we're talking about already it's a miracle. When Jesus was born and all the things that happened on that day was that same likelihood of some blind man walking into Texas and choosing the correct coin. That all happened on day one. So he's a walking miracle already. Here it is. On his coming into Jerusalem, he's fulfilling yet another one of those 400. They're still missing it. It's all right there. and They've been studying as children these texts, and it's happening right before their eyes, and they still miss it. They weren't listening. But what they also weren't listening is in that text, in Zechariah 9, it goes on to say some pretty amazing things that they were also not figuring out that was part of it, that they were all focused in on him coming into Jerusalem and being that king that will establish his throne, missing out on what the rest of the text in Zechariah 9 says. So let me read it. It'll be on your screen before you. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king is coming to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's where the, those who had studied the scripture stopped. He's coming as a victorious king. We'll know he's the victorious king when he comes in on a donkey into Jerusalem. That's our sign. But they stop there. But look what it says after that. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. This is not describing what we thought. He will proclaim what? 
peace to the nations. Just one nation or many? Many. Then it says his rule will extend from just the Mediterranean to the Jordan River? No, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name will be the only name. So again, these scriptures that are in their hands for centuries, the disciples who have known him aren't even connecting the dots of this. They're even, they're even in the knowledge of an agreement that he's the Messiah, and they're still not even seeing it. That he is the one that's talked about as riding in on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's happening before their eyes and, and the people are celebrating and they're thinking, hey, Zechariah 9, this is, this is happening, the victorious king, but missing out on the fact that he's coming to save the nations. All of them. But not with the same kind of victory. It's talking about proclaiming peace. That's a different message from a conquering king that would get rid of the armies of Rome. That doesn't connect at all. But yet they miss out on it because they're not listening which then leads me to this question if they were not listening they were not hearing what Jesus had been saying all along then why was the crowd so big why was this so momentous that you see what is about to be said by the Sadducees and Pharisees as being so significant. Let's continue reading in the passage in John 12, verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed that sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This crowd was so significant that the Pharisees became so threatened that they claimed the whole world is falling in love with them. We've got a problem. Why was there a big crowd? It's because just days before, Jesus did something that wrecked, uh, wrecked the minds of, of the people of that day. He called Lazarus out of the grave. We often don't connect the resurrection of Lazarus to Palm Sunday. But right here it says that those who observed, witnessed Lazarus coming out of the grave were talking about it and it caused people in Jerusalem to rush out to see this Jesus who had done something pretty incredible. I, I, that's, that's something because now you're saying the whole reason why the crowd is there is because he had amazed some people by controlling death, even death itself. What was Jesus coming to do? Die. What was he going to do on the third day? Raise again. So here it is, just the week before and days before, he, he calls Lazarus out of the grave. People are amazed, so they come to celebrate him when he comes into Jerusalem, not realizing he's coming to do the very thing that had amazed them before. But now it's himself. Are we not similar? We like to be awed. We like to be amazed. 
That's why you, you know, things go viral on social media. When something incredible happens and it's caught on, on, on video, we want to watch it and then it gets all these millions of hits. It's because it amazes us. But like anything on social media, once you've been amazed, the next thing that amazes you moves you on. They were amazed to hear that it's somebody had called somebody else out of the grave. What's also going on at this time is you have two ruling parties within the priesthood. You have the Sadducees and you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed that the scripture spoke to the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not. It's important to know that the Sadducees, who again did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, were the ruling party of that day. The chief priest was a Sadducee. The ruling leaders around him were Sadducees. So the influence of the Sanhedrin was the Sadducees. Now, they would divide very quickly over the issue of resurrection, but they, had, they held all the purse strings. They were the ones in control. So when a resurrection happens in their lifetime, guess who's threatened the most? Sadducees. Sadducees. That's why the chief priest was so, uh, so intentional about making sure that we get rid of Jesus. But what's a head-scratcher is why the Pharisees were so threatened. They said, you know, this is getting out of control. Again, they had the information. The Pharisees had actually believed the information about the resurrection of the dead. But then the one who was coming to provide life through that resurrection, they became blind to it because they didn't listen. They had all the information there. Even the Sadducees had heard Jesus and understood Jesus to be saying, that when Jesus said, you know, this temple, you could destroy it, but in three days I will rebuild it. Now they used Jesus' words against him as a way to get him incarcerated. But don't, don't lose the fact they actually knew exactly what he meant. Because after Jesus was crucified and after he died and after his body was put in the grave, what did the Sadducees ask of Pilate? Well, we've heard that he had said to his people that he would die and on the third day rise again. And, and so we're afraid that the disciples might actually go and steal his body. And if they do that, then they will claim that he resurrected and he'll be more powerful dead than he ever was alive. So could you put a guard there uh, to keep that, from, that lie from ever coming forward? So the Sadducees heard. The chief priest heard. He understood what Jesus was saying. There was great fear that if it actually happened, the Sadduceeical movement's gone immediately. The Pharisees were concerned because they had already chosen to not accept him as the Messiah. And so they would be devalidated in front of them. So how is it that Pharisees and Sadducees can see, because they were there, to see Lazarus come out. It says there were leaders from the chief priests uh, that were there standing, seeing Jesus call out a man who had been in the grave for days, but yet they were not amazed. They became fearful. They were not amazed. They stood in opposition. 
Is it possible that you could see something so amazing that God is displaying and yet come to a place of disbelief? Wasn't that long ago that I was sitting at a table with a group of men that don't go to church very often. In fact, a couple of them, not at all. And, and, uh, and so as I'm talking with these guys, I don't even know how the conversation came up. But one of them said, you know, I have been in the military, I've done this, I've done that, but I've only been scared one time in my life. And that is when somebody took me to this Pentecostal tent meeting. And I saw some things there that scared the bejesus out of me, is how he said it, okay? Quoting. It says, I've never gone to church again. Another person at the table says, you know, come to think about it, I think that's the only other time I've ever been afraid was the same thing. You see, there's two possible responses to a very strong, significant display of power. One is belief that leads to listening, to ask why, to ask how, to understand the meaning behind it. The other is disbelief, too afraid to really know the answers, too afraid to engage the journey of understanding. And therefore, you become hardened even more. So you deflect it. You would like to think that if Jesus came today and showed up in this service, a few people at Witness Park across the street came out of their graves and came and joined us for worship, that any unbelievers here in this room would all of a sudden become believers. It'd be pretty amazing. I mean, some of you that have been around this church a long time would be like, I hope one of those people would be Harry Flick. Wouldn't it be awesome to have a guy like that come back in this room and speak? Now, for those of you who aren't, I never met Harry, just so you know, so I'm in your camp. But his legendary presence in this church, I know about. But even if Harry showed back up in this room and was able to speak of the wonders he's experienced over the last few years, does not mean that every unbeliever that came in this room would automatically leave having been impressed to the point of belief. It's just the reality. It's the truth. Seeing is not always believing. The difference between seeing and believing and seeing and disbelieving is, are you listening? Are you willing to hear? A listener says, I want to understand. I want to know. I want to be a part of this in a way that gives me the understanding to a point where it changes me. I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke 16, and we're going we're gonna to finish in Luke Jesus, obviously, as being the Son of God, being the firstborn of all creation, having created us, knows humanity extremely well. It's Jesus who's giving us this story. We do not have any other sources to the story. It is purely from the heart and mind of the Son of God. So lean in, and at the end of the story, it is going to throw a dagger into the heart and mind of a common human being. Beginning in verse 19, this is the story of another Lazarus. So Lazarus, who come out of the tomb by the beck and call of Jesus, causes a great crowd at the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem. 
This Lazarus is a totally different Lazarus, a different story that's merely part of a story that Jesus shares to make a point. So verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked this man's sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. He, in Hades, was where he was in torment. And he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm and has been, that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. All right, you ready? This is the teaching point right here. Verse 27, so he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead, from someone from the dead was to come back, they will repent. Verse 31, he said to them, even, even then, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. <laughs> Connecting the dots? Even if someone is to rise from the dead does not mean resurrected dead equals belief. Resurrected dead leads to salvation. What was emphasized in this text before Jesus throws the final dagger says you can bring somebody from the dead. That doesn't mean they'll believe. The key thing he keeps saying, they need to listen. They need to listen to the prophets. They need to listen to what's found in scripture. They need to go in, read it, and ask the questions afresh and anew to understand that they might actually receive the truth. So fast forward, not too long after this, and you're now at the Palm Sunday. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. People saying, he's coming to save. He's coming to save. And most of the crowds were there because they were there in amazement that he had raised somebody from the dead. Maybe that gives us understanding as to how the crowds were saying he saves, he saves, he saves on Sunday. And on Friday, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him on Friday. You see, they saw, but they did not listen. They saw and they did not believe. They saw, but they did not connect the dots of Scripture. 
they didn't want to believe. There was a cynical spirit. There was a resistant spirit. And as a result, they refused to listen. And even when something so incredible as a resurrected Lazarus comes on the scene, they still didn't believe. Still didn't believe. So what do we take from this? Just knowing the scriptures is not salvific. There's no salvation in just knowing about them. But rather, salvation can be found in the one who listens to the scriptures where he can discover salvation and be found by the Lord Jesus Christ. It also teaches us that simply amaze somebody and get their attention is not enough. They still have to listen. So often we think, well, if you can just come I'm sure the, the, these gentlemen that were sitting at the table that I was listening to, they were scared to death of those tent meetings. I'm sure they were told, if you just come, if you just come, you'll change your life. Bottom line, it doesn't. And I'm not here to say whether, whether what was happening in that tent was real or not. The point is, even if some miracle was to be done before here, it does not equate to belief. It requires listening. It requires a searching heart that as you search, you'll come to a place of belief. So my question then is, are you listening? Which side of the crowd are you on? The crowd that is hopeful because you have been listening and you've been hearing that salvation is going to come not only to us but to many across the globe. And do so by his death and resurrection. Are you listening where you've paid attention to scriptures that you may find life? That life is found in Jesus. Not in your own perception of what you can gain from this or that. Or are you waiting to be amazed? You're waiting to see where the power is. And then you'll believe. Only to dismiss when powerful things are done before you. Because you're not amazed to the level you expect. You see, hope is found in listening and responding to the story. Not hoping in some manifestation that might cause somebody to be wild enough to believe. Jesus understood mankind well enough. They would be thirsty all the time for him to do miracles. But yet their heart's never changing. They kept asking, do another sign for us, Jesus. And I'm sure he shook his head. Signs will never be enough. Are you truly listening? So the question of this week is, do you believe? Do you believe? Then listen. Do you believe? Don't just Hear what I'm saying today, but listen, are you asking the right questions of your own soul? Do you believe? Let's pray. Jesus, I I don't know the spiritual condition of those who might be here in this room. 
I don't know who's cynical. I don't know who's jaded in spirit. I don't know those who think, well, you know, my parents have taught me this. I, you know, I can accept it as, ah, it's some good stuff. But they really haven't listened. They're in doubt and disbelief. They haven't listened. God, I pray that their hearts have been pricked this morning. And that they're listening now because their life depends on it. So God, I pray that you will do a fresh work in all those who believe, that our belief will become more strong and more resolved, less penchants towards wanting to see the amazement and more just believing and confidence. And then when the signs do come, we celebrate and we just shake our head and smile and say, that's God. So God, this story is really about your heart. Your heart for Jerusalem, your heart for all people from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. And you intend to make those changes to save them in the power of the name of Jesus. And by that name, we pray this now. So the best word I can give you walking out of this room is what Jesus said multiple times before he left. He who has ears, let him hear. So you've heard, now listen and ask the right questions and may your belief in him grow stronger than it ever was before. Amen. You're dismissed.